welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. Let's just jump right back in and hope that, uh, Lord willing, the flickering lights remain flickering and don't go back out. Um, we were just talking about a bit of a reminder that Paul has challenged Timothy in chapter 4 to be a faithful servant and not to fear man's disapproval. Paul also encourages Timothy that the true church will follow if, if Timothy pursues godliness in his own life and in his teaching. Godliness, which we define as an accurate understanding of God, that results in a right life lived before God. Accurate understanding with obedience. The leaders and teachers of the church, the pastors, are called to guard their own life and guard the teaching. Perfect. Over the next couple of weeks, we will look at chapter 5, verses 1 through 16, where Paul responds to concerns about the church's responsibility to widows. My goal is to show you how essential this topic is for our own church. The sincerity of our response to widows will determine if God's favor continues to rest on us. In fact, our response to widows will determine whether or not our church can even continue to be called a Christian church. With the significance of this topic in mind, let's read the entire passage for context, realizing that we will only study a portion of it this morning and continue in following weeks. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1-16, through 16, Paul says to Timothy, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him, encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, Older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow left all alone has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. 
So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, asking him to help us understand and then obey his heart for widows, his heart for these destitute ones. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you that you have revealed to us much of who you are and what it is that you call good, just, and pleasing in your sight. Please help us, Father, this morning to to grasp your heart for widows. To grasp your goal and purpose for the church to be the family, the household of God. Would you grip us this morning with the reality of your truth? And then would you empower us to go out and live according to your way? Would you do this for your glory, for the fame of your name in the city of George, and for the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. To help us grasp the heart of God towards widows, let's first set the background for why Paul writes about widows in the first place. All the way back in Genesis, at the very beginning, we see God creating Adam and Eve, the first man and woman. We spent much time in Timothy focusing on how wonderful it was that God created Adam and Eve different. They were not the same, but instead were created to correspond to one another so that together they would become more complete than they ever could be apart. We have seen how God created Adam first then created Eve out of Adam. Adam was responsible for the leadership of this little family, clearly evidenced by how God, when they had sinned, he, God, called to the man and said to him, where are you? Speaking to Adam. After God created them, he did not stand back looking at Adam and Eve as if they were two completely the same creations, and ask himself, which one of these should lead? This is clearly not what happened in Genesis 2. Adam was created to lead, and Eve was created to help him. As God said in Genesis 2:18, I will make a helper fit for him, corresponding to him. Because this was always God's intent for the man-woman relationship, he did not create Adam and Eve physically equal either. 1 Peter 3:7 commands men to show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. When Peter uses the phrase weaker vessel, he is using a common biblical image of our bodies being like vessels or uh, jars of clay. Peter is comparing two 
jars of clay. One jar has thick walls and is built in a sturdy, strong way and is suited for heavy lifting, while the other has thinner walls and will do much better with less harsh treatment. Peter is pointing out what everyone knows, even if our society is trying to erase it from our minds and make it as if it doesn't, it's not even a reality. The truth that men are born physically stronger than women. I am not ignoring the fact that some women have exceeded the strength of the average man by treating their bodies very harshly and dedicating themselves to physical strength. With the right combinations of genes and dedication to training, certain women can and have equaled or even surpassed the strength of average men, especially in our culture today where we sit behind computers and drive vehicles everywhere. But when you look at the potential strength, physical strength of men and women, the contrast becomes apparent almost immediately. It is undeniable. This is why you do not see women playing rugby on the Springboks men's team. And this is why women would not be competitive against men in strength categories at the Olympics. Where did this all come from? What caused women to be naturally weaker than men? How did this happen? For the Christian, there can be only one answer. God ordained it to be so. He purposed for it to be so from the very beginning. When God formed Eve out of Adam's rib, he designed her to be weaker than Adam. And from that moment on, Adam was responsible to take the lead by being the protector and provider for his family. You may protest, protector? There was no sin or death or dangerous animals in the garden. What was Adam supposed to protect her from? But we must remember that God commanded Adam alone, while he was alone, that he was not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God gave Adam this command before Eve was ever created. It was Adam's responsibility to teach his wife the command of God and guard his family from disobeying God. Adam also failed to protect Eve from the lies of the serpent and to protect her by remaining free from sin himself. God rebuked Adam when delivering the curse when he said, You, Adam, you have listened to the voice of your wife instead of me. It was Adam's responsibility to protect his wife by leading her in obedience to God. Maybe Adam's responsibility to protect makes more sense now. But you could still protest. Was Adam really responsible to provide for Eve? Did not God himself provide all their needs in the garden? You are right in imagining the ease of life in the garden. 
Before the fall, the ground seemed to have responded every single time Adam touched it. If we reverse the wording of the curse in Genesis 3, verses 17 through 19, it may help us understand how the garden was designed for man. How things could have been if man had obeyed God. Please realize what I'm about to read is not scripture. It is a suggestion of what things were like before the curse. God could have said, blessed be the ground because of my love for you. Enjoy you, Adam and Eve shall eat of it forever. Every good thing it will bring forth for you, and you shall eat of all its bounty. With great pleasure you shall work the earth and eat. This was the condition Adam and Eve were called to live in. There was no pain in in Adam's effort to provide. God created the earth so that it would jump into life and obey the will of man. But isn't it interesting that when God declared the curse on Adam and Eve for their sin, that he curses the very things that that was their responsibility and the things that they were created to do. Eve was cursed that in pain she would bear children, which was her responsibility. And she, and she was cursed in her ability to follow and help her husband. In the curse, it says her desire would be contrary or against him, his leadership. Adam was cursed in his responsibility to provide food from the earth. Only with much pain, sweat, and tears would he be able to now provide The curse itself shows us that God created Adam and Eve different, with different physical ability in order to fulfill different responsibilities. Eve, even in the garden, before the fall, Eve was always the weaker vessel, and Adam, as the stronger vessel, was responsible to protect and provide for her. Genesis sets the foundation that the rest of the Old Testament builds upon. There is a clear expectation that men were responsible to protect and provide for the women in their sphere of influence. Husbands for wives, fathers for daughters, brothers for sisters, older sons for mothers, and so on. This is the consistent example given in Scripture. If we claim to have an accurate understanding of who God is, then we had better have a clear understanding of what God has consistently called good and pleasing in His sight from Genesis to Revelation. But because of the curse of sin and death that Adam and Eve plunged the entire human race into, there is now a category of woman who could be without protection or provision. This is where the Bible confronts us with the word widow. The word translated widow means one who is bereft or one who is left alone. This word carries with it the idea of a woman who has lost or had taken from her her protector and provider. 
In the scriptures, this word most frequently describes a woman whose husband had died, but that is not the only possible definition of the word. In the New Testament, a widow or bereft one could also be a woman who was abandoned by an unbelieving spouse. In fact, this was an expected outcome for many women who professed Christ Jesus as their Lord and Savior. These women were often divorced by Jewish or pagan husbands alike and then turned out onto the street with neither protection or, nor provision. Going back to the Old Testament, we find so many references to the responsibility to protect and provide for widows that I cannot cover them all this morning, so we'll just focus our attention on three. In Job 22, one of Job's supposed friends, Eliphaz, was imagining why Job must be going through all this suffering. Surely Job must have committed the worst crimes imaginable. And as Eliphaz seeks to create a shock factor for the little group of friends there, he creates or invents a list of Job's supposed crimes. He mentions one that would have been abhorrent to everyone's ears. Eliphaz says, you, speaking to Job, you have sent widows away empty. Therefore, snares are all about you, and sudden terror overwhelms you. The implication being that if Job had ignored the cries of widows, the bereaved ones, then he would have been worthy of the discipline of God. Another Old Testament passage is Isaiah 1, 13-17. Here the Lord is rebuking Judah for their injustice and wickedness. He begins by telling them to quit, just quit all the religious activity and instead to learn to do good and seek justice. The Lord says to the rulers of Jerusalem, bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations I cannot endure iniquity, and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing, bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my face from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. It is just and right in the sight of God to take up the widow's cause to fight for her good, especially when no one else is listening to her need. One final Old Testament passage that helps us understand the heart of God for widows is Psalm 68, verses 4 through 6. Paul, sorry, David declares these words 
praise. David says, sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exalt before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. God is the ultimate protector and provider for the bereft the desolate, the widow. That last line of the psalm is so beautiful. It says, God settles the solitary in a home. He provides a family for the one left all alone. These passages reveal the heart of God toward the weaker vessel when they are bereft of protection and provision. I know there is a massive cultural difference between ancient Israelite women and the modern woman of today. I also realize that many societies attempt to protect women from being abused, mistreated, or abandoned. And there are many government programs out there that attempt to provide for the needs of bereft women. But the fact that women are now permitted to work professional jobs own land, and have insurance policies, even combined with the government's attempts to protect women, these things have not removed the desperate need for the church to protect and provide for widows. The church is called the household of God for a reason. We are His family, those who belong under one roof, and we are called to love, serve, and sacrifice for one another as any true family would. Paul points to this family relationship in 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 through, 1 through 2, 1 and 2. If you would, look with me at that passage. Paul says to Timothy, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Paul is is admonishing Timothy to treat individuals in the church like he would a true family. Timothy, though a pastor in the church, is not to rebuke an older man. This word rebuke in the Greek is a very strong word and is not used anywhere else in the scriptures that I could find. It means to strike someone brutally with your words. The English word rebuke is used many times in the New Testament, but this word is translating much softer forms of correction in the Greek. For example, if you look over to verse 20, Paul tells Timothy to publicly rebuke elders in the church who persist in unrepentant sin. It's the same word in many English translations, but in the Greek, it means something different. In verse 20, this Greek word means to lay out the evidence before the congregation so that all may see His guilt. 
if he persists in sin, is what he's saying in verse 20. It's not the same word as in verse 1. Though Timothy had a big job in front of him to clean up the church in Ephesus, he was not to run in there like a bull in a china shop and start breaking people. Instead, through all the difficult confrontations, disagreements, corrections, and admonitions, he was to treat each individual in the church as a family member. Throughout human history, especially in Judeo-Christian cultures, it has brought the greatest shame on a family for an adult child to slap their father or mother across the face. Only slightly less shameful is for an adult child to slap their parents across the face verbally in public. For a child to strike their parents brutally with words. And Paul is saying that we should bring that same caution to our interactions in the household of God. As a loving son respects his father with his words... So must every young man, even a pastor, appropriately respect older men in the church. This does not mean that sons cannot point out their father's sins. Or speak the words of truth into their life. Or call them to grow in Christ. All these things are part of living in any godly family. We are not to turn a blind eye to sin, but instead we are to give honor to whom honor is due, while at the same time speaking the truth in love. Timothy is also called to encourage younger men as brothers. You may ask, how do you encourage a brother in the faith? Well, the number one thing that comes to mind is that it must be done with humility, and out of a bond of friendship. If you come to a man who is a peer and out of the blue start questioning his character or his leadership in his own family, he is most likely going to tell you to get lost. With brothers, it is important. It is necessary to foster a bond of friendship or brotherhood before you begin to humbly poke one another in the idols of the heart. Timothy is also to encourage older women as mothers. Sometimes boys who are turning into men struggle to honor their mother. Boys begin to grow taller, stronger, and more independent, and suddenly this woman, who apparently unbeknownst to them, birthed them, changed their diapers, taught them, fed them, cared for them, took them to all their soccer matches, and gave them every opportunity in life to succeed. Apparently, this wonderful woman suddenly is now the weaker vessel in their eyes. They realize it. And they do battle within themselves whether or not they are going to honor her as the weaker vessel or despise her because God designed her differently than he's designed. 
too often what you end up with on your hands is a bunch of little boys running around in full-grown men's bodies doing and saying things that break their mother's heart. But one sign that a boy has turned into a man is not the width of his shoulders or how tall he stands or whether or not he has a five o'clock shadow. Instead, a true sign of mature manhood is that a man honors his mother as the weaker vessel. He rejoices in the tender and caring way that God made her. He designed her. Timothy was to look at his love, honor, and respect for his own mother and carry that with him in his interactions with older women in the church. Timothy was also to encourage younger women in the faith as sisters with all purity. It's telling that Paul added this last like parenthesis, with all purity, Timothy is, after all, in his mid-30s, and we have every reason to believe that he is single. This is probably one of the greatest challenges for young men in the church today. From morning to night, our society screams at us to value young women as nothing but objects, simply things to be desired. The, the bombardment of this message never lets up. Men are assaulted by the internet, television, popular music, magazines, commercials, even emojis, Facebook, Instagram, billboards, and the list can go on and on and on. And I haven't even listed anything overly sinful, overtly sinful. Being a young man in this world sometimes feels like trying to survive World War II living, while living in London while the Nazis attempted to bomb the city off the map. The attacks are that frequent and that severe. I know of no other way to survive this bombardment than to seek shelter from these assaults. And some shelter can be found in getting rid of technology that is specifically unhelpful or turning off shows that scream this message the loudest, spending less time eating, drinking, and just being entertained, and instead spending more time serving others. But the greatest shelter from these attacks is the truth of the gospel. The truth that Jesus died to make these young women daughters of God. That the young actress on the television, Jesus died for her. The attractive woman that pops up on your phone or computer screen, God made her in his image and sent his son to rescue her. And the ladies in our church, my sisters, God calls them his daughters, daughters of the king. Fighting back with the gospel is the only way young men can train their hearts and minds to think of women not as objects to be desired,
But his sisters, to respect a young woman as a sister, you must value them as a person. You value their thoughts, questions, and concerns. You pray for them that God will help them with the many challenges that they will face in life. You seek to protect them from physical or emotional harm or for any question being raised about their purity. And if, you, if the need ever arises, you shelter them from becoming destitute and provide for their needs. Timothy was to encourage the young women in the church as sisters in Christ with all purity. Paul's mention of the older and younger women in the church <clears throat> most likely stirs the thoughts on widows that follow. If the church in Ephesus was going to treat one another as a godly family would, then special provision and care must be made for the widows under their roof. Verse 3 is the thesis statement, the point Paul is making in this passage. And the remainder of the verses that follow will point back to this thesis statement, helping to clarify it. So let's look together at verse 3. Paul says in verse 3, Honor widows who are truly widows. This word honor is very important for the rest of our discussion. The Greek word means to behold and value highly. To behold with your eyes, to see them, and to value them highly. To honor someone is to set a high price on their well-being. You are in fact saying they are are worthy of my personal sacrifice. Those of you who have raised children or financially supported a struggling family member or cared for an aging parent know the personal sacrifice involved. Ultimately, how you spend your time, effort, and money demonstrates who or what it is you honor. What is worthy of your personal sacrifice? Paul says that the church is to honor widows who are truly widows. Before we go any further, I want to emphasize the biblical point that those who fear God will show compassion toward widows. And remember our definition of widow. It is a woman who is bereft or alone. This is typically due to the death of a husband, but it could also be due to an unbelieving husband abandoning his, his Christian wife. If an unbelieving man abandons his Christian wife, then the New Testament says it is as if her husband is dead, though he is still physically alive. It is as if she has been widowed. These women are vulnerable, yet precious in the sight of God. We, as the church, must and we will 
pour out our compassion on our sisters and mothers in Christ who are widowed. If we do not, if we let this fall to the ground, if we harden our hearts and shut our ears to their need, then we have denied the faith. And our religion is worthless. But unfortunately for Paul and Timothy, there were some in the church in Ephesus who were taking advantage of the compassion of the church. And therefore, Paul writes the following instructions to ensure the church's limited resources went to those who were truly in need. Paul says in verse 3, honor widows who are truly widows. And by this, he means at least this. Protect and provide for the alone ones who are truly alone. We know this is his meaning because in verse 4, he goes on to say, But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. By this, Paul explains the situation in Ephesus. There were middle-aged men and women in the church whose mother was, bereft, was widowed or bereft of her husband or abandoned by an unbelieving spouse. And these older children would bring their mother to the church and say, we hear you have a fund for widows or a collection for widows. Here, care for our mother. This would make sense if you see your church giving your tithes and offerings as a way of paying it forward into a retirement plan. But Paul makes it clear that this is a mistake. Our giving to the ministry of the word is not a retirement plan. Our giving is how we honor God and value his fame going out into all the earth more then we honor our savings accounts or our comfort or our stuff. Some Ephesian believers were using the church as a way to protect their own standard of living and comfort. And they did not value their own mothers as worthy of their personal sacrifice. Paul corrects this misplaced honor and instructs children and grandchildren to first learn to show godliness to their own household. Here again, we see this word godliness. We define godliness as an accurate understanding of who God is that results in a right life lived before God. And for Christian children and grandchildren to show that they understand who God is and are responding in obedience to that understanding or knowledge, they will provide for their aging parents in their hour of need. They are to make some return to their parents, as Paul says. Paul eliminates any confusion at the end of verse 4 by saying, For this, this is pleasing in the sight of God. He practically repeats the same meaning twice. He says, first, show godliness to them. And then he says, 
do the thing that is pleasing in the sight of God. Paul is making it clear and reminding us that God cares for widows. He is their ultimate protector and provider. And we must get on board with his agenda. Do not ignore his heart for them. And take great care that you do not end up oppressing those who have the ear of God. For as James says, their cries to him, they will reach the ears of the Lord of hosts, which is another title or a name for the commander of the heavenly armies. Children and grandchildren must first learn to show godliness to their own households and provide for their aging parents in their hour of need. We will continue the study as we look at what the church's responsibility is. But for the sake of time, we should stop here and, Lord willing, return next week. In the remaining verses, Paul will continue to clarify this idea. Clarify which widows among us are truly widows. And by that he means those whom the church is responsible before God to protect and provide for. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I I thank you for the wisdom that you provide. Praise be to you that you have not left us to our, our own devices or to be led by our own heart or our own impulses or just the wisdom of man. I pray that you would bless our local church as we wrestle with these concepts and as we seek to have our hearts be in tune, in tune with who you are and what you say is good. I pray that you would bless us now as we seek to continue the remainder of our service. I pray that you would bless the taking of communion. And Lord, that all that we say and do as, a, as the part of the household of God that it would bring honor and glory to your name. Amen.